This episode of Hungry for Wisdom is dedicated to my man Josh because every time I see him, he bugs me to get my podcast back up and running. So, Josh, this one's for you, man. Here we go. Welcome to Hungry for Wisdom. This is the podcast for people who want to know what God knows. He hasn't told us everything, but man, he has told us a lot. I'm Dustin, pastor of Grace and Truth. If you want to know what God knows, let's dig in. Welcome to episode one. On today's episode of Hungry for Wisdom, we've got a blast from the past, a biography from heaven by way of hell, and a beautiful movie. Okay, she's a six. Here we go. So in this section of every episode of Hungry for Wisdom, what we're going to do is a devotion from the book of Proverbs or some other wisdom book in uh, the Bible. We're going to hang out mostly in Proverbs, though, because that's like the most densely packed, you know, in pill form dosage of wisdom that we get in the Bible. So we're just going to hang out there, man. Solomon studied his whole life and came away with some conclusions. Uh, He wrote down a lot of them in Ecclesiastes, but he kind of compiled these things as he went and kept them in the book of Proverbs, and then he gave it to his sons and and things like that, his students and other stuff. Along the way, he just said, here, learn wisdom. And so we've just been glutting ourselves on that for the last 3,000 years, and we're going to continue in that tradition here. So today, all I'm going to do is give you a little bit of background uh, from the Book of Solomon, background on Solomon's life and so on. And then what we'll do in each of these episodes after our deep dive into one of the Proverbs is we'll get into uh, something we're going to, a segment we're going to call This Is and That's, where we're just going to hit different pastoral issues. So you can ask the pastor a question, we'll hit it on here, you know, if it's a good question. Don't be asking me stupid stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm messing with you guys. I will take it all. Because you know what? Bible's probably got an answer to it. And if not, I'll let you know it was a stupid question. There you go. That's the, the social contract between you and me. Well, I might do a... Uh, uh, review. Actually, today I'm going to be doing a review of a Christian movie that's getting a lot of buzz right now. I'll let you guys know how we ought to be seeing this kind of stuff. Or I might do an interview with somebody that wrote a book or is making a splash in some way or whatever. I'll also have different, uh, you know, different co-hosts on here from time to time, and that'll be nice. So we'll get some some other folks in here to get a little variety on that end of things. So we're, we're going to be able to throw all sorts of good content in this podcast. I'm really excited about it because it's a good disciple-making tool. You know, we can just get this stuff out there, uh, you know, worldwide, but but really it's a focus on the people at Grace and Truth. I want to shepherd the flock of God. This is one of the things I call micro-pastoring, right? Micro-pastoring is where, uh, you know, it, it's kind of those touches throughout the week as, um, you know, as you guys are going about uh, about whatever you got to confront that week, uh, you get to keep in contact with your, you know, your folks at church that, um, you know, you need to hear from. You need to, you need a little pump up. You need a little instruction, maybe a little bit of correction or whatever. And that's what we're going to be doing here. So without further ado, Jesus deserves disciples. And so let's, uh, let's get into this and be them and make them. Proverbs is, uh, is a beautiful book. I love it because there's nothing that you will go through in life where you can't you can't find in Proverbs a direct quote or a principle that applies or something. And they're so short and they're so uh, usable. I mean, every one of these Proverbs, especially in the middle section of the book there, you could get these things like, you know, tattooed backwards on your forehead and just see them in the mirror, uh, you know, every every morning and just live according to wisdom. And so these were written by, as I mentioned a minute ago, a guy named Solomon. 
Here's some background on Solomon. He was said to have been the wisest man that ever lived. And, you know, when the Bible says something, that's the way it is, right? So Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. We would, of course, put in the caveat, he was the wisest man that ever lived until Jesus Christ himself showed up, who 1 Corinthians 1 tells us is the wisdom of God and has become the wisdom of God to us. So Solomon's wisdom is great. We love it. It's divine and and divinely given. And Jesus' wisdom is even better because he personifies it. But the reason that Solomon got wisdom was because simply uh, he, he asked for it and it pleased God that he asked for wisdom. So what happened was God came to Solomon and he said, all right, I love your father, David, who, from whom you received the, uh, the throne. And I love you because of the promises that I made to him. So Solomon was like born into this love of God. And he said, God said to him, just tell me what you want me to do for you. You know, what do you want? And Solomon's answer was interesting and instructive for us, right? He didn't say, hey, I want a ton of money. And he didn't say, you know, I want women. I want all the women. (laughs) He wasn't going fleshly with it. He didn't ask for more power, which is interesting because, you know, in his situation, it would have been fine to ask for power because he was God's guy, you know, but that wasn't what he wanted. Instead, what he wanted was wisdom. And he said, God, look, you're offering me whatever I want. I'm going to ask for the thing that I don't have enough of to accomplish the mission that you've given me, right? He said, I need wisdom to lead this people. He said, how am I going to do this? I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to come in. I'm a little kid. How am I supposed to judge this great people that you have chosen? So give your servant wisdom. So God said, you know what? It pleases me that you asked for that instead of money, instead of power, instead of anything else that, that you would want apart from God anyway, you asked for wisdom. So I'm going to dump it on you. I'm going to give it to you. And he gave Solomon more wisdom than he had ever given anybody else in all of existence. And uh, more wisdom than he would give anybody from that point forward until Jesus Christ himself showed up. So let me let me read to you the way that this, this shook out in the text because it's, it really is beautiful. So 1 Kings 3, uh, I'll just read like verses 5 to 14. It's a bit of a, a long chunk, but man, is it is it worth it? So in Gibeon, Yahweh appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. And God said, ask what you wish me to give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Yahweh, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, Yet I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or how to come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon uh, had asked this thing. God said to him, because you have asked this thing and you have not asked a long life for yourself, nor riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before, uh, before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you in all your days. If you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and commandments as your father David, then as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. 
Then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. So there you go. Right, He has this conversation with God, and he hits the divine jackpot. By God's initiation, by God's kindness, not by his own uh, impressiveness, not by his own resume. Right, So we can start to hear these gospel themes, and we'll get more into those in, in episode two. But Solomon's life shows us the kindness of God in some unique ways. He's, he says, here's how I interact with humanity. Check this out. Right. So now Solomon, with that, he got all the good, right? We just saw that. But he also got access to all of the bad. And that's one of the things that happens with great wisdom is wisdom is like a key that gets you into every room you want to be into. You know, when, when you have knowledge and wisdom, which means the ability to to navigate that knowledge, you can navigate yourself right into some trouble, man. And so Solomon goes through the first, you know, 10 chapters of First Kings just on the ascent. He's on his way up. He's climbing all the time, and God is just bringing him up and up and up, and his status and his accomplishments and his riches and everything else. And then you're reading First Kings 10, and you flip the page to First Kings 11, and you just start to, like, get nauseous. You just start to cry a little bit, right? Because in First Kings 11, what happens is he gets distracted you know, and, and he starts, like, he marries these women for the sake of, of political alliances, and then he starts sacrificing to their gods. Uh, maybe just a little pinch of salt over here to keep the wife happy, you know. Maybe we'll, we'll do a little incense offering over here. Maybe we'll burn a, a, a bird over here and do this offering. And his heart starts to get divided. Like, the way that the Bible, um, the way that the book of Proverbs describes this is that, you know, the heart of a, a godly man is like a channel of, of water flowing with great power in one direction. Right? But as you give it to women, what it does is it scatters those streams abroad, and that's what happened. So his power, while it was being consolidated on a material level, it was being dispersed spiritually. Right? So he, he essentially gave up, he willingly gave up everything that God gave him. Now, God didn't actually take his riches away, but boy, they didn't do him any good in the long run anymore after 1 Kings 11. So we, we see the, the great triumph in the gifts of the Lord, uh, and we also see the great fall of this guy morally and spiritually and ethically and all of these things. And it's, it's just this gut-wrenching tale of, you know, riches to rags in, in a spiritual sense. So through all of that, God's grace was not absent from that. He, he said, okay, Solomon, even when you're acting like an idiot, even when you use everything that I've given you for ungodly purposes, I'm still going to give you a pen and you're going to write this down so that your children, your sons, and everybody who reads this, you and me, they can all benefit from it. So he writes down Proverbs, he writes down Ecclesiastes. And at the end of his life, here was the, uh, the, the end of the matter, right? Let me flip over here to Ecclesiastes. And I'll read you the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, and we'll see what he says here. In Ecclesiastes 12, verses 12 through 14. Okay? But beyond this, my son... Be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 
So there you go. You got the wisest man that's ever lived. He lives his whole life. He goes up. He goes down. You know, everything that you can experience in a life got experienced by him. And that's the end of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, and know that you're going to have to answer for what you do. Now, if we could live life with that in the back of our mind or in the front of our mind, how would that change our, our daily, our ethical behavior, right? So just the story of Solomon gives us instruction. Before we even get into what his instruction actually was, we can just learn from the guy's biography, from the, the overarching story of his life, right? Now, the, the main point that I want us to come away with here is that it was Solomon's harem that took him down, okay? It was, he, he basically idolized the women or he compromised himself for his women. That's a good way to find your idol, right? What do you sacrifice for? What, what is that thing for you? Well, that's what took him down. So what's your harem? Right? What is it that's going to draw you off track? What's going to what's going to distract you from following God? Solomon's advice is it's not worth it. Jesus would say it this way: If your right hand causes you to sin, cut the thing off. Get rid of it. If it's your eye that causes you to sin, pluck that thing out. It's better to enter heaven with one eye, with one hand, you know, hobbling on one leg, than it is to go in with a full body directly into hell. He says it's not worth it. And Solomon told us this before Jesus told us. So now we got two witnesses here, people. We got the old witness, the Old Testament, and the new witness, the New Testament. We got the prophets and we got the Messiah himself saying, whatever it is distracting you from the Lord, get rid of it, man. The Apostle Paul would tell us this in various ways. Whether you eat or drink, whether you wake or sleep, you know, I'm paraphrasing, do it as unto the Lord. Make it meaningful in that way. He would, he would say that, uh, you know, whatever is good and, and, you know, on from there, whatever's good, whatever's wholesome, all these things, think on these things, everything else that draws you away from that, scrap it, dude. Just like cut the dead weight because it's going to kill you with it. Death spreads, man. It's like gangrene and it's just not worth it. So when you grab a hold of wisdom, when you hear wisdom, grab onto it, right? And we're going to see over and over again in the book of Proverbs, how Solomon says, my son, incline your ear to my hearing. When you hear this wisdom, Grab it. Use it. It's like a hearth. It's like a like a champion's crown for your, your head, man. It's a decoration to your whole life. You'll honor your father. You'll honor your mother. You'll honor God. And you will honor God's intention for making you because you'll squeeze the juice out of, out of life. When you use wisdom, you get to skillfully live. And that's essentially what wisdom is. It's, it's skillful living in the knowledge of God. So we're going to get more into uh, the book of Proverbs in episode two. But uh, let's let's move to some some thises and thats as we call them, and uh, this is just kind of the junk drawer segment where we get to do any uh, you know anything that's going to help make disciples at all. So today, what I'm going to do is a movie review of a movie that's kind of getting a lot of attention in the Christian world because you know what that's what movies of this style do. So the movie is called Before the Wrath. You guys heard of that one, Before the Wrath? A lot of people are seeing that now. And um, it's a movie about the, the rapture, right? It's about Jesus coming back and taking his bride out of uh, the world. He's taking the church out of the world. And then we see, you know, in the events of the end times, uh, what unfolds from there. And it all ends with a new heaven and a new earth, right? So this movie is, it's an eschatology movie. It's an end times movie, which right off the bat, had me skeptical, right? Like somebody gave me the movie and they were like, this is great, man. This tells you how everything's going to play out in the end and all. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, man. How many times I got to see this movie? Like they're, they're all terrible. What was that one? Um, uh, there was a left behind movie. It might've just been called left behind and Nicholas cage was starring in left behind. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> like what? Hold on. I have no indication that the guy's a believer. He might be, right? I don't know, but I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have guessed like, oh, that's a guy that wants to make a movie about the Bible. And then I tried to watch the movie and I was like, 
All right, yo, Cheese Factor is at a 10 on this one. This is not a Bible movie. This is a movie where they took, like, you know, some events that are vaguely associated with the Bible and then made a movie out of it. This is ridiculous, and I didn't make it through the whole thing. You know why? Because I'm a Bible believer, and I was like, don't do that to my book, man. That's my book. You can't have it, Nick Cage. So anyway, I didn't finish it. So that's kind of how my uh, my expectations were going into Before the Wrath. And I got to tell you, I was impressed with the movie, okay? Because the bar was set that low, uh, I was impressed. It was not terrible. I would give it a 7 out of 10, which is rave reviews for an eschatology movie because typically these things are horrendous and they're unbiblical and whatever. So 7 out of 10, which means it's worth the watch, but I wouldn't base your whole worldview and all your theology on it, okay? I didn't catch any uh, major errors in it because basically all they were doing, the, the message of the movie was very simple. They were saying... Um, you know, the Jewish wedding in first century Galilee, right, where, where Jesus was hanging out, it had a very, um, a, a very intricate structure as to how the wedding, uh, how the lead up to the wedding was, how the engagement was, and then the wedding day and the wedding feast and all of that. And as you look at the structure of the Galilean wedding, uh, you know, specifically the Galilean wedding, but this is all, you know, Jewish weddings for the most part. As you look at the structure of that ceremony and of those rituals, you see that it actually parallels what we're expecting Jesus Christ to do when he comes back for his church, which is cool and it makes perfect sense, right? The church is the bride of Christ and he is coming back for his bride. And so, you know, you, you, that's exactly the, the metaphor that you would expect to play out in this movie. And they did a pretty good job of it, really. Um, I'll just, uh, I'll give you the, all the, the good parts that I liked. And l- real quick, I'll just tell you the one thing that dropped it down to a seven was that right at the beginning of the, okay, I guess there were two things. Right at the beginning of the movie, they said, look, you don't understand the, the gospels unless you understand this thing about Jewish culture. Now, my problem with that is is simply this. When you take information from outside the Bible and you say, you can't understand the Bible unless you have this extra biblical information. What we're doing is we're putting something we're putting something extra biblical, sometimes unbiblical at the same level of authority as the Bible. And we don't want to be doing that, okay? The Bible is, um, we, we believe in a doctrine called biblical sufficiency, which means the Bible is sufficient for everything we need for faith and practice, for belief and for uh, for daily life. We, we would call it orthodoxy and orthopraxy, what we believe and what we do. So the Bible is sufficient for all of those things. So we want to reject a claim that would say, you can't understand your Bible unless you understand this code that I have cracked for you. And you see that a lot in the end times world, right? That's a pretty common thing to say. You've never understood your Bible. If you've ever read your Bible, you've completely missed it until you get this one little obscure thing that I'm telling you. So I... When they went down that direction, I was like, all right, guys, come on. Like, No, if, if it doesn't work for the pastor in the African bush, then it's not true. Because a lot of these guys, you know, these, a lot of pastors throughout history and even in current day in the world, they're illiterate or they don't have their own copy of the Bible. And they're certainly never going to have any books about, um, you know, the, the cultural context in which these things are written. So if the information cannot be found within the text, then it can't be essential to our understanding of the text, or else the Holy Spirit left something out. Now, cultural context can be very helpful. It can be illuminating. You can learn a lot from it, because these these things in the Bible, specifically here in the Gospels, they were written into a certain cultural context, right? The original audience was meant to understand this, and they probably had an easier time understanding a lot of these things than we do because they got the cultural references. So while cultural context is extremely helpful, 
It cannot be the difference between hearing God and not hearing God. That's the Bible itself. Okay, so there was that. On a minor note, um, there was one guy that was in there, uh, one one pastor they were interviewing in the documentary, and he was like, "Nobody preaches on this stuff anymore, and churches don't care about it because you know it's confusing or because it's controversial or whatever. Because we don't care about the Word of God, so you'll never hear this in a church." And I'm thinking, bro, shut your mouth, man. I've been teaching this for years. That was one of the things that bugged me about the movie was like, like, yeah, okay, the the events of the gospel and the end times and stuff, those parallel to a large degree the Jewish wedding. And I was like, I've been saying that for years, and now when I say that, everybody's going to think, oh, good, he saw the movie. I'm like, no, but that's just a pride thing. But anyway, I, I do think that uh, that pastor was a little too big for his britches on that one. And I'm like, hey, man, I know you're saying that, uh, that people don't care about this stuff or that they're intimidated by this information or it's too controversial, you should come to Grace and Truth and meet my people because we actually love the Bible and we love each other. It's amazing how that works. Anyway, so that was, those are my two caveats, my two warnings. You don't need extra biblical information in order to hear what God is saying. It's very helpful for the fullness of our understanding, but you know the word of God is perfectly sufficient to give you everything you need for faith and practice. Also, that pastor got under my skin. That's it. Now, the good parts of it, they they organized it very well so that it was extremely clear, and they nailed a lot of these parallels. I'll give you a couple of examples. When Jesus is in the, he's in the upper room for the Last Supper before he goes to the cross, right? And he breaks bread and he gives it to his disciples. Well, they're having a, a meal together. This is normal. This is what Jews do, you know? This is what everybody does. We eat meals together. But then he poured a glass of wine and he passed it around and he said, drink this. And that looked to them like a marriage proposal because that's the custom. That was the custom in first century Judaism as to how you would prepare a marriage. What would happen is that the fathers, the son would say, hey, dad, I found a girl. Hook it up. Go talk to her dad. Let's figure this thing out. The fathers would come to an agreement because they had to merge families, which had economic impact and all that kind of stuff. So the fathers would come to an agreement about a dowry price and about a uh, you know um, uh, the the arrangements for for living and where the girl will be living and all that kind of stuff because you know they don't want to lose access to their daughter they they love her and so they would hammer all that out and then they would set a date but they kept the date between themselves okay and then the uh, the son would propose to the young lady at a banquet they would get the families together and he would pour a glass of wine, and set it before her. Now, if she drank the wine, she was accepting the marriage proposal. And everybody freaks out, and it was like, yeah, this is great, this is going to be a wedding, yeah. If she refused the wine, it was an awkward night for everybody, and the parents wasted a lot of money. And not often did, from what I understand from history, not often did the young lady refuse the wine, because if you turn down a marriage proposal, there's like social, uh, you know, pressure and their social implications for that. Maybe another man won't want to propose to you, all of these things. So there, I'm not saying it was a totally free choice. There was a lot of pressure, but that's essentially what would happen. She did have the chance to opt out and say, no, I don't want any part of this, right? But if she drank the wine, then they would party. And then the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be, the two fiancés, they would split up and not see each other for a year, Okay. Now, they might see each other around town or whatever, but they weren't allowed to spend any time together. They weren't even really allowed to talk most of the time. And so in that year, the young man would be building a house, usually attached to his father's house because there was a family business or a family farm or whatever, right? So the young man would be building a house and he would prepare a place for him and his wife. Now, when the house was done, you know, at that deadline, the father would come and, and say to the son, all right, it's time to go get your bride. Let's go. Boom. 
you got a wedding that's going to happen, right? So then the groom goes and he grabs his bride. He, he comes for her and he takes her to himself. They have a wedding ceremony, which is a feast. And then they go and live in the house together and start their family, right? So that's, um, that's the way that it went. And that's essentially what Jesus said in the upper room. So he gives these guys a glass of wine. And to them, that would come across like as if he were getting down on one knee, right? So uh, you can imagine these, <laughs> these guys in the upper room like, is this dude proposing? What in the world is going on right now? Because this was very familiar to them. And they drink the wine. And then he says to them, what does he say? He says, now I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. And I will come again and receive you to myself. You know, I'm paraphrasing. I got those mixed up. But all he's saying there is, hey, you guys have seen this before. This is what's happening. Now, I'm sure that they didn't understand all of the, you know, the, the little idiosyncrasies in real time as this was unfolding. But the fact is, they recognized what was going on, right? And the, the uh, John, who was in that room, he became the Apostle John and uh, uh, wrote the book of Revelation, right? Uh, later on, the Apostle Paul would, would uh, pick up on this analogy as well before John wrote Revelation. And they would all say the same thing. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. And so then when he comes back to get us, that's that First Thessalonians 4 rapture thing, all of this stuff makes perfect sense from a Jewish perspective, right? Now, I don't think... I couldn't tell exactly what the movie was saying here. I, I I might disagree with this. I'm not sure. I'm just going to throw this out there just so that you got your radar up, okay? Um, I couldn't tell if they were saying that the Gospels are based on a, or that the, the, the story in the Gospels and these, these uh, Jewish customs were based on the cultural custom. If that's what they were saying, I would say, ah, let's be careful with that. Let's flip that up. I don't think that the Bible is based on a custom of man. I would be much more inclined to say that God worked in his providence so that the Jewish culture was based on what he was planning on doing with Christ and the church, right? So in other words, in the culture of God's people, he, however he did it, made sure that these prophecies were written into daily life so that when Jesus comes back to his people, these categories are already built for them and the Messiah makes sense to them. God does this all the time. He writes prophecies into daily life, right? So you can take a look at the marriage relationship, for example. And Paul tells us this. He says, look, the, the way that God designed marriage is designed, it is intentionally pointing you to the relationship between Jesus and the church. That's what God was doing when he made marriage. So it's a living prophecy that he wrote into the structure of daily life so that when Jesus would come and love his bride, love his church the way a, a husband loves his wife, and all that, that, these things would make sense to us. We would have a way of processing it, of explaining it, and inviting others into it. So I would say, you know, I don't, I don't think that the Bible is based on, um, on what people decide to do, right? God's like, ooh, there's an opportunity here. These guys put up certain customs. I think I'll organize the entire end times timeline of events around what those guys developed in their culture. I think instead, uh, God just writes his message all over the world for us to see. It's Romans 1, right? We call it general revelation. The things that God wants us to know are made evident in what he has made. And I think it's pretty cool how he goes about it, you know? he In, in this case, he went and made a whole culture, you know, shape around this wedding ceremony that would describe to us what he's going to do for us out of a great amount of love. So, beautiful stuff. So, yeah, I would recommend watching Before the Wrath and, uh, you know, learn from it. And anytime you're interacting with media, have your, uh, you know, have your your um, discernment, uh, 
meter redlined. I want you guys to always have your antenna up and be listening for truth and error. Chew the meat, spit out the bones, and all of that. But there you go, guys. Have fun watching that. Write in if you got any other questions. Um, you can uh, just head to graceandtruthcommunity.com and hit, hit me up on email, or you can hit me up on Twitter at GT Micro Pastor. I check that about once every six years. So, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll get your, your uh, question at some point. But all right, guys, listen. Jesus deserves disciples. Go and be some. Hungry for Wisdom is a ministry of Grace and Truth Community in West Richland, Washington. You can find out more about us on our app, social media, or at graceandtruthcommunity.com. We love Him because He first loved us.